I first learned about Tarana Burke um, when the Me Too movement started to take hold a year or so ago. And I thought, like so many, that this was something that was brand new. But when I started to read the articles, I found out that this actually came from this woman, Tarana Burke, years ago. Obviously, the Me Too hashtag and movement has become a part of our lives, a part of our culture and our society. So you can't begin to um, overestimate how powerful this is. And it all goes back to her. Tarana, nice to see you. Hello, nice to, thank you for having me. So you are an activist, an organizer, and you began this at a, at a very early age, my understanding is, when you were a young teen. So how did you get into this and what set you on this path? Um, I had a family that was very conscious. I had a grandfather who was really um, conscious, sort of Pan-Africanist. My mother was uh, very involved in community work and, and, um, and raised me, not necessarily to be an activist, but to be very conscious. And I, I could identify injustice really early because of the books that I was given to read and the things I was exposed to. Um, but then at 14, I or joined an organization called the 21st Century Youth Leadership Movement. And it was a national organization, but it was based in Selma, Alabama, which of course we know from the history, from the voting rights movement. And so I spent my summers, um, actually I spent my summers in Selma going to leadership camps and then two other, two other times a year we would also meet in mini camps. And yeah, I started being an organizer because of 21st century. The, the purpose of that organization was to train like the next generation of leaders and pass on this legacy that they had created from the civil rights movement and other movements. So I took this like body of knowledge I had from my family and married that with these skills that I got from 21st century and yeah. So you were here in New York, in, in which borough? In the Bronx. In the Bronx, and then going down to Alabama, back and forth, which yeah. must have kind of been mind-blowing. It was just in very itself. interesting to be 14, 15 years old from the Bronx and travel to Alabama in the 80s and yeah. like early 90s. It was a very interesting transition. So what specifically um, made you go towards um, working on uh, young women of color and sexual violence um, what specifically brought you to those topics and subjects? Well, it was a progression. My work has always been focused on racial and economic justice. And so that was, you know, like a foregone conclusion. I've done work in and for the black community, you know, from the very beginning. Um, when I came out of school and I went to work for 21st century and I met a child in our, one of our camps who was a survivor and that that girl shared her story with me and it was painfully familiar. And, um, and I wanted to share my story with her or at the very least I wanted to say that this happened to me too. And I just had a real inability to, to do that. I couldn't break past these, you know, the, on the issues that I had. Um, and I really felt like I failed her in that moment. I failed to be able to be empathetic enough to just even say, you're not alone. Um, that failure, if you will, I know I recognize now that it wasn't a failure, but that's how I felt, um, propelled me to want to at least do better 
you know, in a really, in a really minimal sense, do better. And then some years later, um, my friend and I co-founded an organization uh, called Just Be Inc. And in doing that, you know, it was for girls and it was for black and brown girls. It was really particular to black and brown girls because what we saw, that organization wasn't about sexual violence. It was about leadership development and about developing a tool to help these girls, for, for them to develop a sense of self-worth um, or to further their sense of self-worth. And for us, it was watching these girls try to thrive in a world that constantly told them that they weren't worthy, that, that, that reaffirmed the fact that they weren't worthy in various ways, whether it was through media or music. And we wanted to ground them in a foundation that gave them tools to fight back against that lie, right? And so it was great. The organization was, was really successful in that work. But we also had so many girls who came through our program who were disclosing in various kinds of ways. And it just became clear to me, Selma's not very big. And our program at that time was centered in the middle school. And so every middle school girl pretty much in the city was coming through our program because they went to the same junior high school. And to have that many children whose lives were touched in one way or another by sexual violence, <clears throat> to me, was an indication that we had a problem in our community. Um, I didn't have a real grasp on the pervasiveness of sexual violence worldwide at the time. I just knew that we had a problem locally. And it wasn't, you know, because it had happened to me in New York. So I knew that it was more than just one place and that there's never been, in my experience, in community work or organizing or activism, there just hadn't been a response to it. There hadn't been a, a, a group of people who I worked with who said, you know what, why don't we examine what's happening that's exposing these young people to sexual violence in these volumes? What's happening in our community? If it's police brutality, if it's everything from, you know, gas prices to, to corrupt politicians, we were out in the streets protesting against, right? This economic disadvantages, political disadvantages, you know, corruption in politics or in police law enforcement. And to me, this was just as both pervasive and problematic. And it just, it, it deserved a community response. And at some point you came up with this phrase, which has now taken on a whole another life that we'll get to in a second, but me too. Yes. And, and can you tell us the story of how you came up with that phrase? Well, it was meeting the girl. It was, the, it was, it was when I couldn't say this happened to me too. So when, when literally, this is like a, not weird story, but literally some years later, we'd started Just Be, and I was trying to think of, I really wanted to do work around sexual violence. It was just gnawing at me that we didn't have some kind of program that addressed it, that talked about it. I had been doing my own internal work on my issue, you know, as a survivor to try to figure out what healing looked like. And I wanted to bring that to the young people. And it's like, we talk to young people about everything. Why don't we talk to them about this, right? I wish somebody had talked to me about it. And so it just, it came to me, these words that I couldn't say to this girl could be healing to other people. So now I can say it, right? And so I remember, telling my friend, like, this, we, I, there was a website that you could go and design your own t-shirts, and I created a t-shirt that said Me Too on it, and I sent it to her, and she was like, wow, you know, 
And it just, you know, it took off from there, but very differently from now. So there's some similarities and some differences. One of the similarities is that although it was on a smaller scale, once I started doing like work through the, through the lens of Me Too, everywhere we took that, we found survivors. Every room we entered and talked about it, people disclosed and it was in alarming numbers. Um, it just was, it was hard to get in those rooms back then. It's just much easier now. And I just never could imagine we'd get to a place where people would want to talk about sexual violence. And so that was in 2006, my understanding yeah, it was is, around Yeah, 2005, that. 2006 school year. And it wasn't until, um, I think around 2017, there was mm-hmm. Alyssa Milano tweeted out the phrase Me Too, which was, you know, in the wake of these allegations of high-profile people in media, et cetera. So how did that make you feel when you saw your phrase being taken to this whole other level? Um, initially, I was alarmed. I, was, I thought, this is a thing that I created in a, for, in a very specific community for a very specific purpose. And, you know, like, we didn't deal with sexual harassment in the workplace or things like that. We, thought, we dealt with sexual harassment in schools and sexual harassment um, in communities. Um, so I felt like it was going to be in danger of being manipulated and turned into something else, which is still, you know, in many ways people are trying to do that. Um, and I thought people would not believe that this existed already, that this work was existing already, and this effort, this movement had already had a body of work behind it. But, I mean, that was quickly dispelled. <laughs> Did the people make you feel welcome? They understood that you were the originator of the phrase and had oh, yeah. done all this work and brought you in? There's a lot of like backlash or just misinformation about how that took place. So people still, to this day, jump on Alyssa and say, like, like try to accuse her of stealing it from me. Or, and that's not what happened at all. So people in the black community knew my work. I've been doing it for so long and I had been associated with it you know, so closely that people started coming to me and saying, why aren't they talking about you? Why, why don't I see you? And I didn't know what to do, right? Because this was becoming a phenomenon. It hadn't quite obviously hit its peak, but it was certainly happening fast. And, um, and so I just put out information. I put out a video of me giving a speech at, the, um, at an anti-rape march in Philadelphia from 2014. And Me Too is a movement to, among other things, radicalize the notion of mass healing. And I put out a note saying, you know, it's wonderful to see people using the phrase Me Too. This is where it started. This is our, our, our philosophy around like empowerment through empathy. And I just sort of put it out. And then black women around the country came out in force and were tweeting about it. And, you know, people were tweeting at Alyssa Milano, folks were tweeting at the other news outlets saying, you're getting it wrong, this is the wrong story. And they started listening. And Alyssa reached out to me the next day, or like two days later, and said, you know, I'm sorry, I didn't know you existed. She tweeted out my website. She invited me on Good Morning America with her. So she was super supportive and an ally from the very beginning. It didn't, she didn't have to be goaded into it. Um, and then the rest was, I think, what was happening too is it was, just, it was one of those kind of uh, sweet spots, you know, a perfect storm because the phenomenon happened so fast and I think so many people didn't know how to respond to it, but I was perfectly poised to respond to it because it was my work, you know, it was connected. It wasn't just like two words. It's like a whole thought behind it, thought process behind it. There's a whole, um, 
way that we do this work and reason why we use these words. And so being able to articulate that for people, I think helped them understand why they were so drawn to, to either both saying me to or watching the phenomenon take place, right? Somebody who can give it context and like say, this is not just so people can have something to say on the internet. It's just not another flash in the pan kind of thing. This is a movement that is, that is led by and for survivors of sexual violence. Were you surprised that um, in this kind of modern incarnation of Me Too that the focus seemed to be so much on um, men in, and w- women who are victims and the men who are the abusers in the media and Hollywood? Yes and no. Coming off of this Weinstein case, it was such a big media hit, right? It was just everywhere. And the high profile actresses, you're talking about A-list actresses from Hollywood or, or actresses who we've loved and didn't hear from again and all of a sudden these things are starting to come together we love celebrity like culturally we love celebrity you know and media is driven by viewers and by readers and so I think that um, the media kept pointing back to celebrity to say this is the story I think the big misstep in that moment is that there's a math equation happening here and you're like mixing the missing the x component you know Mm -hmm. that yes this is this is big powerful men and yes these are celebrities but this is a this is one story and what you've just been given is like 12 million stories right you have this this story wouldn't have continued to carry with the kind of depth that it had if these millions of people hadn't have come forward and said my life is affected by this too and those stories were never told they were they were they were just sort of skipped over to keep coming back to the celebrity stories which is a, it's like a weird phenomenon. You're feeding these stories to the people who said, yes, I know what happened to them because it happened to me too. I mean, you would hope maybe that because those stories are high profile, it would empower women just in everyday situations to be able to say, my boss, my coworker, my and relative, it and it did do that. Yeah, though. absolutely, okay. it did do that. But the other part to it is that the people who were saying me too on the internet were not just talking about being harassed at work. Mm-hmm. They were not, and even the call that Alyssa put out was if you were assaulted or harassed to say me too. It didn't have any qualifiers around that. Mm-hmm. And so to narrow it to just like, oh, if you've been harassed at your job, okay. you know, right. it's, it's really does a disservice to these millions of people who are talking about child sexual abuse or being assaulted on campus or, you know, like these various ways that are intimate partner violence, like that, that sexual violence shows up. Um, it released people to talk about these really deep, dark secrets they had been holding, you know, out of shame and fear, and then it stunted them. Right. How has the uh, movement addressed the role that um, race and class play uh, in sexual violence? I, I don't... So our work in the movement is particularly around that because I say this all the time that, you know, sexual violence doesn't discriminate, but the response to sexual violence does. You know, right now people are looking at this R. Kelly case. It took 20 years to get this level of attention about a person who has had consistent accusations against him for the last 20 years. It took two articles to bring down Harvey Weinstein. And when you look at the, 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 the difference in those responses, different people, different kind of things, but in some ways, not, you know? So um, 
even within the Weinstein case, you know, you had all of this sympathy and empathy for the women who came forward and then Lupita comes out and tells her story and it's, I mean, she got, people responded, but it's the only story that he pushed back against, right? So there's just these little nuanced things. I, I think another example of that is, is Native women, Indigenous women in the country. The, the, the Indigenous, the missing and murdered Indigenous women in this country far exceed by percentage, far exceed any other group, far exceed. And yet we don't talk about them. These are Native women around the country, Indigenous women, whether they're on reservations or in community pockets, who are consistently um, experiencing sexual violence and other types of violence, and yet those stories don't get told. So there's, there's certainly a different response to sexual violence based on the community and based on the class of the people. I guess that maybe leads to this question, which is what have you, what has the movement um, accomplished and what is yet to be done? Yeah. I think that what we've accomplished is certainly broadening the conversation about sexual violence, moving, letting people understand that it's a spectrum and that we have to look at the entire spectrum in order to really get to the, the root of the problem. You have to look at the breadth of the problem. And what we've done a lot of this year is try to shift the narrative so that people understand that when, we, when somebody says me too, they could be talking about so many different things. And we have to unpack that and we have to really look at why we, how we got here. It just, it's always fascinating to me that so many people could have used a hashtag in such a short period of time and there wasn't a story that said, what is going on in the world? What is going on in our country? that we have this many people whose lives are affected by a thing and we don't have like a national task force, you know? And Me Too did stop the world for a second and then it kept spinning on its axis in the same way. As opposed to saying, how, do, how did we get here? How do we get here and how do we stop it and how do we make sure it never happens again? Well, let me ask you those questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, how we got here is because sexual violence has been, it's, you, it's connected to these larger systems. It's connected to patriarchy. It's connected to capitalism. It's connected to these larger systems that can be oppressive and, and, and create space for people to have an, an unchecked accumulation of both, of power and privilege. And so when that happens, it creates the dynamics, whether it's in powerful rich white men or, you know, men in your neighborhood who have authorities, if it's priest, if it's, you know, if it's a coach, it can be any number of people that have these power dynamics. Um, obviously, there's a depravity involved in that as well. But this, this mix of that is what creates the conditions for sexual violence to happen. What has to happen now is for us to not just to, is to continue to diagnose and say, oh, this is also a problem. Like, call it out. We have to name it. We have to say child sexual abuse is a problem in this country. We have to say, that, you know, missing and murdered indigenous women being sexually assaulted is a problem. We have to say that black and brown girls who cannot safely walk to school without being sexually harassed and sexually assaulted is a problem. We have to talk about trans women who are dying, right? We have to sit, name these things, get it all out on the table, and people take their parts. There's no, like, I say all the time, this hashtag is not a magic wand. Right. This hashtag is not going to change. It's not going to cure anything. It'll galvanize people. It'll create awareness. And then we have work to do. We have tons of work to do. And that's not me as an individual or us as an organization. It's the world. People have to pick their poison, figure out where you fit in here. There are so many gaps 
in the work to end sexual violence and interrupt sexual violence that can be filled, right, right now. And then beyond that, there has to be a cultural examination of why we're here. And not just even why we're here, but what are the ways that we can start looking at making our communities less vulnerable to this thing? That, that just, these conversations have to happen on high levels. They're happening in the community, right? I didn't, I didn't invent conversation around sexual violence by any stretch of the imagination. They're happening in local, on local um, levels and regional levels. There are whole scores of people. There's like conferences of people who come together to talk about sexual violence every year, but we talk to each other, you know? Right. And the conversation has to be outward. You mentioned capitalism. So I've got to ask you, what role do, can companies and businesses play in addressing this problem? You know, remember years ago when they said, when there was this whole controversy about companies being people? It's like, companies are made of people and they have to have um, a, a larger dose of humanity and humility in, when addressing this, um, these kind of issues, right? Which means that you have to create work environments. We throw around safe space all the time but really examine what safety looks like. And, 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 and that has to be based on the lived experience of the people who are making your company work, your employees and your, you know, your staff people. And folks have to have honest conversations about what real safety is and what people actually need and what they've experienced and be unafraid. I just think, what I do think that, that corporations have the ability to do is to be far more courageous than the government. Does having a president like Donald Trump, or just does Donald Trump make all this work that much harder? Yes. He's a self-admitted sexual predator. People don't want to say that or call, call that a thing a thing, but out of his own mouth, he talked about the ways in which he assaults women at will. That is, um, that is how we define a predator, somebody who does this without regard for another person's humanity. Um, and so having somebody, so that, that's a clear indication of how you think, how you regard women, how you regard people, how you regard boundaries. Um, it's hard to set an example for young people or even for people when you don't have leadership that reflects any of those values. And so, um, you know, you, you take that and then you marry that with trying to get policy change. And I think, you know, we've seen the wave, we're certainly progressing in government, and the government is not all just revolved around Donald Trump. So I don't want to create that impression, but it definitely doesn't make it easier. Speaking of maybe change coming, there's going to be an election coming up. Have you given any thought to which candidates are appealing to you? No, I just, I think it's super early. I think that, you know, this field is going to be big, clearly. It's already pretty big. I think I wonder, I would love to know historically how this matches up to other presidential elections in this time period of people vying for office already. Um, but there's so many people that there's no clear, to me, front runner. They all have good qualities, but also qualities that could be questionable, that should be questioned and should be um, examined and, and like interrogated before we make that kind of decision. So I haven't made that kind of decision yet. But there's, you know, there's a few people I'm a little excited about. Would the Me Too movement ultimately endorse a candidate, do you think? I don't know. I think what we would do is, um, like I stayed pretty clear of politics in that way mm -hmm. because it is nonpartisan. There's, mm -hmm. no, there's no delineation on who is a survivor and who isn't. 
But I think what we would do is provide guidance for people in selecting candidates, right? We should absolutely, survivors are a constituency and we're a constituency that crosses every demographic. We cross across every demographic you can name, you can find people who are survivors. So I think we, we could provide guidance in how to vet politicians and make sure that you're holding them accountable for their track record on making communities less vulnerable to sexual violence. I could see us doing that. Is the Me Too movement, does it continue to unfold going forward? Absolutely. I mean, you see new stories of new ways of looking at this problem, mm -hmm. maybe solutions, is that right? It is. I mean, you see a lot of the stories we see are still a little bit salacious, a little bit individualistic. I think that um, it definitely continues to unfold because, like I said, we're still unfolding the issue. And as the issue unfolds, we have to continue to add on to the conversations about solutions. So there's, we'll be unfolding and unfolding for a long time to come. So that's the, I, without question, the movement is still unfolding. I mean, does the media need to pay more attention mm -hmm. to those undercovered stories. I mean, Absolutely. because you see, you know, the latest story in the New York Times that I saw, for instance, was indie rock musician. Again, it was a celebrity. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, it was an interesting story and, yeah. and maybe an important story. But, you know, they did that. The New York Times also did that one story about the women working in factories mm -hmm. in uh, yeah. Michigan, I think it was. Mm -hmm. So there was far fewer of those more ordinary people stories. Yeah. I would love to see more ordinary people stories, but I would also love to see more stories that look at systems, mm. that look at how these things allow to happen, that look at uh, people who are on the ground trying to figure out solutions. Because you know, none of us have absolute answers that we'd be implementing them, but a lot of us have different answers that we're trying, and we're, we're trying to see if this works. And, we're, and so it'd be great to elevate both the people who are on the ground doing the work because what happens is that, you know, I've had a lot of visibility in the last year and I absolutely feel proud to represent Me Too and to represent our work. But Me Too, for me, represents a very particular lane. We are, we exist to help survivors connect to resources that they need, to help them understand that these resources are available and that they deserve to have them, that healing is possible and we, we can help you start crafting that journey. And we're here to activate people into advocacy and action to end sexual violence. Those are two very clear buckets. We're also here to change the narrative so that people think about, talk about, react to, and respond to sexual violence differently. That's a lane. There are Time's Up has a lane. People doing work on the ground have, the lane, have a lane. You know, like there are several different lanes to occupy. So it would be great to look at how the, the work of interrupting sexual violence is unfolding and how it's been impacted in the last year. Because the other thing that hasn't happened is resources have not been distrib redistributed to the people doing the work, but the, but the volume has increased because people feel less shame to talk about it now. So as they feel less shame, they're going out to find help, and the people who are providing that help aren't getting the resources they need to meet the volume. So there's lots of interesting questions that, are, that could be um, great stories. And final question, are, are you concerned about, or have you seen a backlash um, to the movement? And, and do you ever interact with people who think, you know, don't think kindly to what you're doing? And have you been able to have conversations <laughs> with them and convince them? Can you talk about the other side a little bit? Well, there's tons of backlash. Mm -hmm. We deal with backlash every single day. I can't say that I, that, 
the kind of person that I would sit down and try to, to convince that we're doing good work or are people who are maybe middle of the road, you know, who are who have bad information about the work and if they had who I can tell if they had better information would understand and be supportive. But it does not behoove me to have conversations with people who are just contrary who have made up their mind that this is uh, a bad thing, who have made up their mind that the old guard is what they want. They are comfortable in their misogyny and sexism and patriarchy and sexual violence is like just what, this is how the world works. It, I don't have the time, the space, the mental energy to engage those people, to convince them to be human beings, to convince them that my humanity and the humanity of everybody is important enough to value, to not violate them. Um, we have much more work to do on the other side. So the backlash is, is hard, um, and it's part and parcel with, you know, with the work, you know, clearly. But we kind of deal with it as it comes. I think a lot of the narrative work that we're doing is helpful with the backlash, because I do think that some of it is just not misinformation and not really understanding, right? If you see big headlines that say, this person, that person, this person, you start feeling like, oh, this movement is just about like calling out these people. And then, you know, a lot of times people know like what they see in the news doesn't match their lived experience. So they're like, this is not about me. What I learned from Tarana Burke really was that I should consider how privileged, frankly, my life was. And that, you know, when I think I have issues that I need to address, and I do, um, they they pale in comparison to some of the things other people have been through. And people who um, are real activists, who've really had lives where they've had to battle, are very different from the life that I've led. And it makes me admire people like this tremendously. From the person who coined the phrase Me Too, Tarana Burke, it's interesting to hear what she has to say about business and Wall Street. And not surprisingly, she thinks there is more that needs to be done. Thanks for listening to Influencers. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Yahoo Finance on Twitter at Yahoo Finance and at Surwork.